Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder that has uh, built, financed, and also exited several companies. So I think that we're going to be able to learn a lot from his experience. So I mean, we're talking about someone that has done an exit to um, a, in, in a couple of the companies that he founded to really large corporations. So I think that it's going to be interesting to understand, you know, the process and and the ins and outs of of doing deals of this type of of degree. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Morley Thirumale. Welcome to the show today. Hey, uh, glad to be here, Alejandro, uh, and thank you for uh, for uh, the opportunity to talk with you. So born in India, and then you lived in Indonesia, and then India again. So how was life growing up there? You know. Um, I recommend very highly for anybody uh, an opportunity to live outside uh, of, you know, their long-term country uh, where they've lived because it's just a wonderful kind of experience. And I had the opportunity to live in Burma and Indonesia before I went back to India. And of course, now I've been in the U.S. for uh, 35 years or so. So uh, just uh, great to have lived in so many different countries. So I believe that you got into into tech and electronics. So what would you say triggered the love for this? I think, uh, you know, a, a love for science is really what triggered it. I think uh, one of the, uh, you know, wonderful things about science is how, uh, how there's an explanation for everything. And it's so logical. And I think the... Uh, the world of engineering kind of follows. Once uh, once you kind of uh, fall in love with science, then you kind of go, what can I do with science? And uh, pretty much engineering is doing stuff with science. And uh, that's kind of what led me to engineering. And and you eventually came to the U.S. And, you know, following your education, um, you, you basically went to Northwestern University for your MBA. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Kellogg School of Management. Yep. So going from the engineering side more to the business side, what was... What was this transition for you like? You know, the transition, I think, was something that I had decided while I was in engineering school itself. Uh, I think uh, several things that that uh, made that kind of uh, a good transition, I guess, for me was that uh, in addition to, you know, engineering, which uh, which is about, uh, uh, you know, building things uh, that that do amazing, uh, amazing, uh, have amazing results, I think the the business uh, was, for me, w- was uh, interesting because it allowed me to kind of leverage uh, 
the uh, social aspect of my uh, personality and my and my uh, character, which where you know doing stuff by yourself, but also doing them with others, is something that I think uh, businesses is, is about uh, is about leverage. And so I think that was sort of one thing that attracted me. The other thing that attracted me to business was the clear measure of results. Uh, that happen and the impact you can have and kind of measuring the impact on the world uh, rather than just sort of measuring the results of a uh, of an engineering feat, if you will. So both those were interesting to me. And my understanding as well is that right after business school, you went into Hewlett-Packard. So why did you go to HP rather than perhaps, you know, starting your own business like maybe some of your other classmates were doing? Yeah, actually, when I when I graduated from business school, I think I had uh, you know Kellogg is a pretty well known school in marketing, and I had lots of opportunities in banks, in consulting, uh, in in consumer companies, uh, really well known companies. Uh, and uh, and uh, the the reason I kind of ended up at Hewlett Packard and uh, in the Silicon Valley was because I think a lot of uh, a, a lot of what Silicon Valley always has been about is about creating things. Uh, you know, the world kind of doesn't have something and then you kind of invent this thing and then uh, the world has this new thing and hopefully the world is better as a result of it. And I didn't quite get that same uh, feeling that uh, of, of invention. It felt like a zero-sum game, particularly in the banking and finance sector where it felt like, uh, you know, if somebody made money, somebody else lost money. And uh, and so the the opportunity to be creative and have a technical impact on the world and leverage my engineering degree was why I ended up in the Silicon Valley. So what, I mean, you were for 15 years in HP. Yep. So uh, what were you doing there? Uh, did a lot of different things. I kind of, uh, I would say, I think I switched jobs on the average every one and a half to two years. So did a lot of different things there. Uh, started, believe it or not, in support and worked my way up to becoming a leader and a general manager of a business uh, where, uh, which I did for about a decade and did various things in, in, uh, marketing product management, market research, uh, of course, general management ran, uh, uh you know, a, a whole product area, including some manufacturing, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, selling and growing a business. Uh, and I think the, the beauty HP was a fantastic place to, uh, grow up in. Uh, I think it, as a company, it had uh, you know outstanding people. The values of the company were were really uh, wonderful. It's uh, you know I learned a lot from uh, from other people around me, but also about how business was run and conducted with uh, with the highest kind of integrity uh, as well as uh, uh, people values, and also with a great great focus on uh, on having an impact and contribution in the world. So I think just a, a wonderful place. Uh, the, the technology was varied, you know, kind of was involved uh, all the way from building a cesium atomic standards uh, up to network synchronization system and wireless systems. So it was kind of a, quite a wide variety of technologies. So why did you leave after so long? Well, I had the uh, opportunity to actually sp spin my, uh, my business, which uh, which we had I had kind of started up a couple of businesses, and as a team, we had grown that business uh, pretty significantly. Uh, and 
uh, we had an opportunity to kind of spin that business and sell it out of HP, which is what really what happened, uh, I think. Uh, and and I kind of led the team uh, that spun out of the business, and we kind of uh, it, it was it was the opposite of the acquisition. So we we were. Uh, we spun our business out and kind of became an independent business, which then grew to about, uh, uh, you know, now a three to four hundred million dollar business uh, in in its own right as an independent company. So, what was the name of this uh, independent company? Well, that company uh, we spun it out and merged with a company called Symmetricom, which uh, built network synchronization systems. And that company then has since now been. Uh, acquired twice, been acquired by MicroSemi and then now with Microchip. So, uh, in fact, it's kind of funny, Alejandro. I was just looking uh, at our product line uh, and saw that all the products that we created, you know, this was back in, geez, 1992 uh, onwards. And these folk, these these uh, network synchronization clocks are still ticking and delivering value. It's just a wonderful feeling to see that uh, and, and how those, uh, you know, it's still... Uh, creating employment, helping customers, and uh, and is a you know multi hundred million dollar business uh, running uh, even today, uh, almost two decades later. And this was actually the segue into your very first company. So um, so why after all these years, you know, having your your nice you know stable you know income and and salary, why why you know all of a sudden you decide to become an entrepreneur? I think at HP, I discovered that, uh, you know, wh- while I was, uh, you know, happy and able to kind of uh, run a larger business, which was more stable and 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 maybe drive towards uh, profitability, I think the opportunities I had to grow businesses from scratch was much more exciting. So I'd kind of done the uh, being an intrapreneur inside of HP twice and said, hey, this is so much fun. Uh, why not? Uh, why not do it over again, but do it outside of HP? Now that I was outside of HP, and do it uh, in 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 a way that allows me to kind of uh, you know drive uh, you know what business we're in, what kind of team we do it with, uh, what kind of customers we pursue. So the enjoyment of growing a business is is something that i learned while i was inside hp and uh, and obviously being in the silicon valley which is an incredibly enabling environment allowed uh, allowed me to say hey let's go do it uh, all over again and you know it's it's been it's been wonderful uh doing it now for my, for my for the third time over and we'll get into the third time and the second time so let's talk about the first time so how did you come up with the idea and and what led you to say, hey, you know, like I'm going to finally say goodbye to corporate and, and, and go into startups? Yeah. One of the things that, you know, you know, I think you'll you'll hear from me as a repeated theme is uh, is to be very, very, very customer driven. Kind of a customer first kind of mentality uh, is something that I think permeates all of the businesses that I've been involved in uh, very, very much. Uh, you know, a model of of validating ideas with customers, co-creating ideas with customers, and so on. So, so to to kind of go go to our first company, one of the things we've done, and uh, you know, I've been fortunate to be uh, to have worked with uh, some of the same people as co-founders uh, over the years, and you know, across my three businesses, I've had one co-founder who's just a, a, a you know dazzling, dazzlingly brilliant, fearless, technical person. 
And what we've done in each company, uh, it's a little bit of a unique uh, situation. We actually come up with multiple ideas and we compete them against each other. Uh, it's a strange thing to say, but you know, uh, the reason we do this is because as an entrepreneur, it's very easy to fall in love with your own idea. The very nature of an entrepreneur is that you tend to be very creative and you tend to be very excited and proud of what you've created. Uh, and uh, of course, while that's good, you know, what you really need want to do is build a business that customers are excited about and not just you. And what we figured was that the best way to do that was to actually uh, compare multiple ideas and have the customer vote for which ideas they liked best. You know, uh, and it's almost like uh, like an American idol of entrepreneurship. So what we do in, in uh, actually in all the three companies we've created since is, believe it or not, we have uh, two and usually three ideas that we come up with. And we uh, build a prototype for each one of them. And we go get feedback, typically from about 20 to 25 customers. Uh, and also kind of concurrently kind of think about, you know, uh, what it would take to, to, to build out the rest of the business plan, kind of do a sample kind of business plan. But most important step in all of this is the customer validation. And, you know, it's amazing. We each of us as, as a founder, we each have our own favorites on multiple businesses that we, uh, ideas that we start. But by the end of this process, uh, which I call SDBS, you know, sell, design, build, sell, which is to say uh, the first step is really, in, you know, a lot of companies tend to, a lot of entrepreneurs tend to design, build, and then try to sell their product. Uh, and really what we should do is really spend a lot of time trying to get customer validation up front. So the SDBS idea is that you try to create a prototype of your product and maybe try to go shop it around. And in our case, like I said, we actually compete three different ideas and get feedback. And, and we always end up with ideas that some customers like a lot more than our other ideas. And believe it or not, in any case, many of these cases, we've ended up uh, picking the idea the customer votes for, even though we may have one of our other ideas was more of a favorite. And it's worked very well for us because when customers love what you do and they really, really want and can't wait to get their hands on what you're doing, that just creates a compelling motive energy for the business. It's that, that becomes the reason why you are excited about the business. It's the reason why uh, you know, VCs will fund your business. It's the reason why uh, other team members join your business. It's the reason why when you have execution problems, you're able to overcome problems in the business is because the customer is pulling you over these speed bumps. So uh, a customer first motivation is how we've always built our businesses. And that's how we started Netsix. So then, then now finally you got the validation, you got the 20 to 25 customers to say, hey, you know, we like this idea. Uh, and, and then what happened? And then what we do is, uh, you know, go build a prototype and, uh, and go start to get some, you know, uh, maybe about, I would say, no more than two to three customers who are willing to try your, uh, your early prototype and give you some feedback. Now, what happens is, uh, how do you get to this phase? Well, typically you can, you can get to this phase, you know, uh, 
on a shoestring budget, which is usually all you need. You really don't need, you're not trying to build a whole prototype, which are, uh, a whole product which are, or a business. What you're trying to do is build something that, that showcases the, the key value or the key technology that you're providing. And so many times we've kind of done this on without a lot of money. And so we've not necessarily have uh, had to go raise a lot of money. In some cases, you know, maybe we put in our own money uh, or we kind of, uh, you know, worked for no salary. It's a very common thing, I think, especially in the Bay Area and with founders. Most founders are familiar with that model. Um, at that point, once you kind of get two, three customers who say, wow, this is really kind of, uh, you're, you're, you're now showcasing and building for me what I would actually buy and put in production and buy more of. Uh, that's typically the point at which we go raise funds and uh, go out and raise, say, uh, you know, a Series A round, uh, as is fairly typical. And uh, so that's uh, so so validation, so ideation, multiple ideas, validation, go build a prototype, get get a couple of, uh, you know, uh, pilots going and then kind of go raise money. So for Net6, what was the business model that you guys uh, had, you know, before you went to to get money? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I had put some money in. We had actually uh, one of my very good friends who later went on to uh, become a VC and fund and was one of our first funders also put in some seed money. And uh, we uh, then went and raised a Series A round uh, and uh, grew the company, actually, uh, Quite a bit. We had uh, we had actually an OEM deal with uh, with Cisco that helped us uh, get launched, and uh, and then that company kind of you know grew. Though I must say, uh, Alejandro, I think we started the company. There was no credit for timing there. We started the company uh, uh, just after the dot com bust uh, and before nine eleven. So in the kind of late two thousand timeframe. And, uh, you know, the, as, as many, as is now well known that, that, that period of 2001 to particularly 2003 was sort of the nuclear winter for startups. And, and, uh, like every other startup at that time, we went through a lot of, uh, uh, ups and downs and survived that. Uh, and then, uh, and then post 2003, the business grew very, very well. And, uh, and in late 2004, we were able to kind of uh, grow it enough at which point we had a choice to kind of expand by getting more money. So we had raised uh, another round uh, in 2003. And at that point, we chose to sell the company uh, to Citrix. And how much money did you guys raise in total for the business? You know, I'm trying to remember, I think we had raised uh, about, uh, about 28 million, I think, uh, for, uh, for that company. So why, why after experiencing that growth, why did you guys decide to to sell to Citrix? What, what was the yeah? Process? It's a it's a very uh, it's always a uh, very very interesting and important uh, milestone when you when you're growing a company and we were growing very fast at that point uh, as to decide how you achieve you know more growth and and what's the vehicle to achieve your vision or your, your mission. Um, in, 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 in our view at that time, the, the business that we were in, we felt that the, uh, we actually, you know, I mentioned the twist and turns. We were actually not the first to market because we had kind of pivoted 
that uh, the, our first company had pivoted in a in a in a new direction because the original premise for the business uh, had changed and and in in the in the 2001 crash that had happened. So we had kind of gone to a security from a wireless kind of business to a security uh, type of business, and in and in that change, we uh, we ended up not being really the first to market because uh, because of the there are other people who had kind of been in that business before us. And our belief was we had something very unique and, and, uh, and had a fantastic user experience, but, but the ability to grow that business required a lot more funding than we were going to be able to kind of uh, do organically through a kind of a venture model. And so we, uh, we felt that the best vehicle for us was to be acquired by a company which was looking for a growth uh, business and in fact, Citrix uh, and and the CEO there uh, at that time uh, uh, was really we kind of gelled on on both the uh, uh, kind of cultural al- alignment as well as the vision for the business. Uh, and, and Mark Templeton who was the CEO at Citrix at that time, just an awesome, awesome uh, person. In in addition to being an, uh, a wonderful CEO, uh, we just kind of saw that. Citrix, uh, you know, was expanding from its kind of application virtualization business into a much larger app delivery uh, model, and we were the first hardware company and appliance that uh, that Citrix acquired. And subsequently, we went on, and you know, there were a lot more acquisitions we made as a company and grew a significant appliance business uh, and uh, and app delivery business, which is uh, you know a multi billion dollar business for Citrix right now. Very cool. And I believe the reported amount by the press was over 50 million. So really, really nice uh, outcome for the first uh, business. And after this, you spent a couple of years at Citrix and then you went on to start your second business. So so tell us about the second business, Ocarina Networks. Yeah, Ocarina Networks, um, you know, we, we again did the same uh, SDBS model and had three different ideas. Some of them, uh, which I think I still think of uh, today as being like, Awesome ideas, but we went through that same validation process, and the the idea we had was something that customers really resonated with. Um, and uh, f- frankly, what it was was just a very very simple concept, you know. And I'm a big believer in the value proposition of what you do should pass sort of a grandmother's test, right? You should be able to tell your grandmother what you do. Uh, and and in fairly simple terms, and 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 if if your grandma can get it, then customers will get it too, right? And and our value prop for for Ocarina was fairly straightforward. Basically, we said uh, we were a storage optimization business, and the idea was, let's say, if you had a hundred terabytes of data that you had stored, we would essentially uh, apply some compression algorithms uh, and allow you to store three to five times more, so you could store. Uh, you know, in that same disk drive or disk space, you could save, say, 300 to 500 terabytes, right? So it was a cost reduction play. And, and uh, you know, and that was the time uh, in kind of the 2007 area where, where data was just, and still today continues to grow, but we had, you know, digital devices coming on board, cameras with huge uh, you know, sensors and lots and lots of memory. Video was coming on board. So unstructured data was just growing like a weed. And our value prop was, hey, Mr. Customer, 
if you have uh, a lot of data that you're generating, we'll let you, you know, store three to five to sometimes 10 times more data in that same space without having to add more uh, equipment, right? So kind of very simple, uh, store 10x what you have in the space that you have. And uh, again, something that resonated particularly with people who had lots and lots and lots of uh, large images. So you can imagine, uh, you know, animation studios, uh, genomics companies, uh, companies like Shutterfly, Kodak Photo, uh, DreamWorks, Disney, uh, genomics companies, uh, all these companies that had tons and tons of data. In fact, people have forgotten MySpace. MySpace was another example of a customer. These were all customers who uh, bought a lot of our products. And again, uh, recently, we, uh, as we went to uh, start Portworx, we visited some of those same customers for an entirely different value proposition. And you know, one of the most wonderful things for me is when we visit customers uh, and they say, hey, I've still got one of your old products. Look, look here, it's ticking. And the guy took us over and said, hey, look, here's your, the green ocarina boxes. And I'm still getting value from them. This was like 10 wow. years later. Uh, it's one of the things that I think is the greatest joy of being an entrepreneur is, is seeing how customers still use your products and value, get that value uh, for a long, long, long time. Uh, it's, a, it's a feeling of great satisfaction. And one of the things that I see here is that, you know, the, the investors were really unbelievable. I mean, you got Kleiner Perkins, Highland Capital. So what did you have? Did you follow like a same, a similar process on how you were able to validate ideas to perhaps how you were able to know if the investor was the right one? Yeah, I think, you know, investor choice for founders is, is a very, very uh, tricky situation. You know, many times I think, Founders feel like they're really not in charge when it comes to fundraising in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, raising money is a hard thing to do. Um, many investors are very particular. It seems like, uh, you, you know, you, you, you t it takes much longer and you visit a lot more VCs uh, than, uh, than, it would, uh, than you would like to. But in, in, in many ways, I guess I have kind of a couple of thoughts about fundraising that, uh, you know, just kind of speak uh, in a, a stream of consciousness here. First and foremost, right, uh, fundraising is a means to an end, right? It's, you, you know, look, the VCs are in the business of investing their money. That's their business. It's burning a hole in their pocket. Their LPs are going to ask them why they haven't invested their business uh, while they're very, very particular about who to invest in and what ideas to invest in, they're in the business of making of putting that money to work. That you know, customers on the other hand are in the business of hanging on to their money. So first and foremost, really the focus of a business, it, especially when you're founding the company, should be on customers and what customers can you find a idea which will which which for which a customer will part with their money. That is one of the most hard things and one of the most high value things you can do. Technology is easy. Technology is cheap. And, I, you know, I don't mean to demean uh, the wonderful inventions that engineers make, but, but there's, in, there's inventors all over the place. But finding a customer problem is the single biggest issue that a, a, a startup needs to solve. And once you solve that problem, if you can find an idea where customers are willing to part with their money, 
then I think you will easily find uh, a VC who will give you money because the VC also uh, is convinced by the same thing that the customers are, which is the VC says, hey, if a customer is willing to part with their money uh, to this set of people, then this must be a fantastic idea that is worth investing in and growing. Right. Yeah. So, again, while funding is hard, the focus should be on on uh, solving a customer problem and 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 then the VC money comes uh, naturally. As far as kind of, you know, raising money, I think uh, in in a way I I don't want to oversimplify it, but, uh, you know, VCs operate really on two two things. Right. They operate on fear and greed. And the entrepreneur's job is to uh, let the uh, take the VC's hand away from the fear lever and and go to the greed lever, right? And I'm not saying that because VCs are bad or anything. They're, they're very, very smart people, but their job is to take calculated risks uh, and, and they want to make money and that's the greed, but they're, they're fearful about issues and risks in the business, inherent in the business or inherent in the team. And so, you know, uh, they, their model, uh, the, their model is how do I kind of pick the r- right mix between a return versus the risk? And there are experts at that, and people in the Series A level have a certain level, type of expertise. And they, when you get to B and C and D and later at every stage, there's different types of VCs, different categories of risks that they take. And and understanding that is a part of what uh, every CEO has to do. Uh, and I think, in 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 my view, uh, if if uh, if you kind of understand the motivations of the VCs, you should then be able to find the right VC. Uh, I also have some strong viewpoints about you know don't just let the VC pick you. You should also pick the VC. Uh, you know, uh, there are uh, it's very very important to find some. Uh, VCs who have the same uh, governance model for how how they want to kind of uh, work with you in building that business, uh, and and you know they they come in all shapes and stripes just like entrepreneurs come in all shapes and yeah. stripes, and finding one that aligns with your model of how you want to grow the business uh, is very very important because otherwise you will get out of alignment with your board and with your VCs. And that can spell disaster uh, as you try to grow and continue to capitalize and fund the business. And in this case, I mean, it was uh, really unbelievable because you guys founded the company early 2007. And already on March 2007, you had completed your Series A with Highland, Kleiner, Perkins, and and so forth. So so how did this happen? I think, um, you know, we we, uh, were lucky uh, to uh, have... uh, uh, met some people, particularly, you know, the, uh, the partner for Highland, again, was somebody that uh, we had kind of uh, worked with to help. He actually was was actually from the storage business. And in this case, you know, uh, again, uh, my, my co-founders and I had started a business uh, with with in which we had very little background, right? So uh, the business was built on the two technology pillars of storage and compression, both of which we didn't know. Uh, and so we kind of had reached out to some thought leaders in the business to kind of get some knowledge and some validation. And, and, uh, and you know, uh, 
Peter Bell, who was one of the uh, one of the uh, folks uh, who ended up funding us out of Highland, was uh, was a himself a storage entrepreneur with huge success in the past, and we worked with him to help uh, kind of give get us some validation of the business. And so naturally, when 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 the when we got to funding the business. Uh, Peter was somebody who already knew about us and, and we knew him and we really liked uh, the working relationship and said, uh, hey, we'll take money uh, from Highland, which was uh, uh, really at that time uh, very much of an East Coast based uh, VC. Uh, and uh, then as we met other people, the team from Kleiner Perkins was uh, not just a, you know, had had a wonderful pedigree and a fantastic reputation, but it was also very clear to us that they were going to be able to help us. Uh, particularly as we wanted to reach out to customers and build a, a PR and build a kind of a team, right? Uh, so some, uh, you know, many, many seasoned entrepreneurs in the Valley look for who has funded your company as a proxy for their own diligence, whether they should join the company. And I think the combination of Highland and Kleiner uh, really helped us kind of uh, uh, with that. And And both the partners, uh, were people that I did a lot of referencing on. So one of the things that I would again recommend is VCs do a lot of referencing on founders. Uh, and I highly recommend that you also, as an entrepreneur, uh, do should do a lot of referencing on your uh, on your VCs, particularly on the general partner who's going to be uh, you know on your team. And in both these cases, uh, for example, you know, I asked for references from comp for companies that they had worked with. And, and to be honest, it's, I asked for references and talked to people where maybe the business had not done well along yeah. the way. Uh, when, when your business is doing well, you know, everything is fantastic. You, the VCs, the board, you know, where everybody is just high-fiving each other uh, and things are hunky-dory, yeah. right? It's it's when you hit the inevitable you know uh, speed bump or execution problem. There is no business uh, that does not have issues and and have ups and downs. If anybody tells you that their business was just a smooth, beautiful ramp going you know up and to the north all the time, they're just lying because there's no such there's no such startup, right? That's the stuff that people say in panels and. And, and things like that. It's, it's, it's history rewritten and revisited. Uh, every startup goes through issues. And how you and your board kind of work through those issues becomes critical. And, and I think, so one of the things that I reference companies uh, and the partner for, for, you know, on VCs on is how do they behave when things are not going well? Uh, what do they, what kind of support or advice do they provide you? Do they uh, give you a helping hand? Are they there to kind of continue to support you? Or are they there, you know, to kind of continue to just beat you up? I mean, so now you have the world beating you up and your VC beating you up or your board beating you up. It's not really the the, the best situation. So that that is uh, something that I would highly recommend. Find VCs that can add value, but also kind of support you when things are, are, are going south. Got it. And how much capital did you guys raise for Ocarina? Again, I think we raised, uh, I think it was a similar amount, about 28 to 30 million uh, for uh, Ocarina across uh, two rounds. Very cool. And then the company ended up being acquired by Dell. And I believe that that was the 
most meaningful exit uh, today, so substantially higher than the first one. And then you go on, I mean, you thought that you were going to be retiring, but then, you know, Portworks uh, comes knocking, which is your most recent venture. So, so what are you guys doing at Portworks? Uh, at Portworks, we're doing something pretty amazing. There's this, uh, this, this uh, awesome technology called containers. And, you know, in a very simple way, what we are enabling to do, doing with this technology of containers is we're enabling uh, customers and enterprises, really large enterprises, to rapidly deliver and deploy applications in production, right? And, and speed how they compete. Uh, so today, you know, the fast eat the slow, right? Uh, if you are a, if you're a slow enterprise company, you're going to lose. Things are moving fast. Uh, customers demand fast results. Uh, enterprises that move fast are the ones that are going to win. And so, you know, technology is, of course, one of the enablers of, of uh, large enterprises today across any business, right? You know, we look at the, uh, you know, world of Uber and Netflix and, and, and it's not just consumer-oriented companies, you know, uh, large companies, whether it's carriers or, or banks, they all now use technology as a key uh, ingredient of how they win. Yeah. And our technology enables customers to really rapidly innovate and deploy applications at scale in production very, very quickly. And, uh, and the way we do that at Portworks is use container technology and another technology called Kubernetes and, and combine all of that with the customer's data and orchestrate their data. So we are a data and, and storage management company that allow customers to rapidly use their data to be able to win uh, in their business. Very cool. And here you guys raised uh, a little bit more, so over 50 million. And again, wonderful investors uh, such as uh, Sapphire, uh, Mayfield uh, Fund, GE Ventures, Cisco, even Michael Dell himself. Is that right? Yeah, I think, you know, Michael has put some of his own money in in our uh, early part of the rounds because, you know, he, you know, he, does, he doesn't really do it for money. I think Michael uh, is, is somebody who uh, is constantly, I'm just amazed at how well he's uh, tapped into different ways of knowing what's happening in the world of technology. And I think this is, uh, you know, his way of continuing to keep uh, engaged with uh, with some of the newer technologies uh, uh, and so on. But yes, uh, we've, uh, we've been very fortunate. We just have some awesome investors. You mentioned Mayfield. Mayfield was one of the people who I think uh, uh, and, and Naveen Chada is a guy who uh, is a very astute investor, but more importantly, somebody who I think, you know, I talked about customer first. They have a people first mentality. He invests in, in, in people and, and ideas uh, very early in their inception and has uh, had huge success uh, with that model and, and kind of reinventing uh, Mayfield itself as a startup. Sapphire uh, is a company, again, with a huge uh, string of successes. And Jay Das is somebody who's had, uh, you know, a string of IPOs recently. And we're fortunate to have them uh, both continue to invest. And in the last round here, we've kind of uh, taken kind of a little bit of a different model. We, we were really, uh, this is our CDC. We had a growth kind of a 
uh, focus and we're been, we've been growing very, very fast as a company and acquiring a lot of, uh, you know, global 2000 type of customers. And we were looking for people who can help us grow. And we went with uh, investors like Mubadla, which is a sovereign fund uh, and, and really kind of uh, gets us access to a whole new set of uh, markets, uh, especially internationally. But also, uh, you know, strategic investors like Cisco, HP, and NetApp, who are all, uh, you know, in the same ecosystem, IT ecosystem that we're in. Yeah. Uh, of course, we have other partners who, who had, you know, who are very important to us, like IBM and Google. But, but they, the, the fact that they don't, uh, they have not chosen to invest, doesn't matter to us. These, these, uh, you know, they, we're at the point where uh, leveraging a large ecosystem of partners is the uh, is an additional way to grow. Of course. So we have been very fortunate that people have recognized uh, that we are kind of a leader in this space and therefore uh, choosing to work with us. Very cool. Very cool. So so one question that I always ask the guests that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, let's say, you know, like you were having a discussion with your younger self and, and you were able, you know, now that you build all these companies and have this knowledge, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why? Wow, there's, <laughs> Alessandro, that's a pretty, that's an awesome question. You know, lots of things come to mind, right? Uh, obviously, you know, one should not live a life of regrets and wonder what would have happened if. Uh, so uh, I'm certainly not, uh, you know, of that, uh, of that uh, ilk. Uh, but I would say, you know, a couple of things come to mind, right? I would definitely say do it sooner. Right. If you think, you know, if you believe that something is worth doing, do it sooner. So I would, uh, you, you know, I would have uh, probably uh, done a lot of the same things I did, but I would have done them sooner. Uh, and you know, just dive in. Right. the The way you learn, the way you improve, the way you accomplish is by doing, not by thinking about it. And so, one, I would say, do it sooner. The second thing is is really pretty kind of obvious stuff. It's it's uh, to uh, you know be the driver in your own life, right? What's that old John Lennon uh, song that life is what uh, uh, the line that life is what happens to you when you're making other plans, right? So I think being relying on yourself and and building that sense of self awareness and confidence in yourself is the way to go. And, and believe me, when you believe in, in yourself and other people start to believe in you and you build a team and other people start to invest in you and rely on you. So uh, those are sort of two things. You know, as far as an entrepreneur, I think I would highly, highly say be customer first. Uh, you know, validate everything with customers, co-create your products with customers, let your customers help you decide what you should do before uh, other people tell you. Your customers as being the guiding light for your business is critical. Another one that's sort of obvious in retrospect, but it's always true, is to win as a team. I think, you know, just my personal belief is that uh, all of us are better than one of me. So we is greater than me. Uh, it's sort of an obvious thing to say, but its importance can't be understated. Uh, I think investing in the right people, you know, I mentioned my co-founders, 
my, my current team, across all of my companies. And it's not got anything to do with entrepreneurship. It's true even at HP. The teams that we built as uh, in, in each of these companies, the, the team that is, is what wins, yeah. right? Because the team will self-correct. The team will improve. The team will fix things. The team will hold itself and each other accountable. So winning as a team is really at the heart of, of everything. And I would say this is not necessarily a lesson uh, that I did not learn. I think it's something that, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would reinforce to, to the younger uh, myself. Uh, and the last thing I would say is something that I've believed in throughout my life, I think, uh, is, is just to be joyful, right? Joyful at work, joyful in your life, uh, and uh, enjoy all of the things around you. Uh, there's joy to be had in every moment of the day. And, and it's not something that, you know, people sometimes think that they should be happy outside of work and unhappy at work. And I, 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 that, I mean, if, if you're doing something like that, don't just like, you know, there's, there's, there's reason to be joyful in everything you do. And if you're not in, you know, if you're not in a, in a job or a, or a, or a business or with people or with, uh, 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 an opportunity that doesn't, doesn't give you some amount of joy, move on is uh, what I would definitely say. Got it. Got it. Very, very profound, Morley. So thank you for that. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, um, you know, uh, it, at, uh, you can always, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, M-U-R-L-I is my first name. There's not too many people with that name, uh, I'm sure, uh, on LinkedIn. But uh, you can also uh, send me mail at mthirumalev. So it's M-T-H-I-R-U-M-A-L-E at gmail.com. Happy to help in any way I can. And I would love to hear from you and hear about your adventures and your journeys. Amazing. Well, Murli, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Absolutely a delight to talk to you, Alejandro. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.